I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long-term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Hello. My name is Demetrius. This is Jason. Hey, guys. Uh, Michelle, are you with us? I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) And you are listening to Spaces Podcasts. Welcome to Spaces, and for our returning listeners, thank you for coming back. Uh, Just a few quick announcements before we jump into it. Uh, If you stumbled upon the show, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss another episode. Two, if you enjoy this episode, please rate and like it and share it with a friend. Three, please connect with us on social media, Spaces Podcast. And the last one, the biggest one. We have officially confirmed Spaces Podcast Live. We'll be at the Four Sons Brewery in Huntington Beach on Wednesday, December 19th. Uh, More details to come as we get a little bit closer and, and work out some details. But come and see us. Come and hang out. We'll be celebrating our one year anniversary of the show. So. Uh, Looking forward to that and hopefully seeing uh, some of our listeners there. Today we are discussing transportation, but before we jump into it, I want to catch up, go around the room. Uh, Michelle. Yeah, I I unfortunately, I am leaving on an international trip next week. Uh, We are going to Thailand, so my dad um, is from Thailand. He was born and raised there. He came to the United States in the 70s to get his master's degree. Met my mom, um, essentially only went back one or two other times, but immigrated to the U.S. And so, you know, my dad, who is in very good health, um, he is in his 70s. So I've been really itching to go back with him. My mom has actually never been. uh, So it actually, my my whole family's going. So my mom, my dad, my two brothers. Um, and then we have a lot of family that lives there. So we'll be uh, seeing family while we're out there and doing some other exploration to uh, different parts just outside. Like, you know, we're leaving Bangkok. So we're going to Bangkok, but then we're also going down to kind of the Phuket region and doing some beach time as well. So has Phuket, is Phuket actually written like I like one of my favorite phrases? <laughs> is that that place? Yep. Because if it is, uh, it looks amazing from well, everything I've it, seen. Yeah. So it uh, the spelling is P H U K E T. I can't wait uh, to go there, and I'm not going to pronounce it Phuket when I go. Yeah. <laughs> well. Yeah. <laughs> 
don't don't give Americans bad names now. <laughs> oh, I think I do that all the time. <laughs> yeah. There's actually an island. Uh, we're not actually staying on this particular island, but we are going to do a day trip to it. And it's spelled P-H-I-P-H-I, but it's actually pronounced Pee Island, not Fifi Island. Um, and there's a bunch of other. Like, we're, so we're staying on this island called Koyanoi, which I'm almost even embarrassed to say it because I haven't heard a native say it. So I'm, I'm afraid that I'm mispronouncing it. And then there's a bay, um, which is, I think, Fong Nua Bay. Again, I'm probably mispronouncing that. Uh, but that's, there's been a lot of movies. So like James Bond movie was filmed down there. Um, I think it's called Beaches with Leonardo DiCaprio was filmed. Oh yeah. Um, on PP Island. So PPI. we'll be in that. Yeah. So we'll be in that region for four days. And then the balance of our trip will be spent with family in Bangkok. <clears throat> um, so kind of a nice cultural immersion and uh and you know we've, <laughs> we're going over the thanksgiving holiday so we, we will miss sort of the traditional thanksgiving um but you know we'll get this kind of cool experience so very cool. awesome yeah jason do you got anything i had a pretty dead couple weeks so nothing to update yeah. really no the only thing i really did was we stole just like literally a half a day and well a day and a half basically up in big bear and it was gorgeous we were up there this past weekend and uh, uh, the sunsets we've been having lately, I don't know if you guys have been noticing, but have been just unreal. Yeah. Um, the colors have been just like off the charts. So it was pretty cool. So it was nice to be up there. We were there for Friday night. And then we basically went and did some riding, some quads and stuff like that Saturday morning and got home, you know, Saturday about five o'clock in time for another sunset and barbecue. And um, it felt like a, a, a much longer trip than just one night, which was cool. Uh, but other than that, everything else is pretty, pretty status quo. Yeah. Yeah, again my my few couple weeks have been uh, pretty dead, so just a lot of work and stuff. But let's jump into it. Uh again, we're talking about transportation today. And one of the reasons we're talking about it, um not only is there a current uh prop proposition on the ballot, um which by the time you hear this, there it will have already been passed or shot down. But the transportation industry is is one of the fascinating sectors of the building industry. The idea that transportation is is connected to our economy, um, social and spatial changes. It's uh, it's something that that has to deal with topography and weather and water, um, and then the, the relationship to the economy and then time and space and travel, and then you layer that uh, with the unpredictable nature of humans it's it's kind of one of those really complex uh things that that has an effect on our built environment and and the buildings uh, that we that we occupy as well and because of its complex nature uh, we decided to bring in an expert uh, he's a registered professional engineer in the state of california and a project manager for michael baker international a national civil engineering consulting firm. He manages large transportation infrastructure projects specializing in freeway and interchange work throughout Southern California, uh, works with state and local agencies as well as developers. He's quickly become a leader in the industry that focuses on improving traffic, safety, and movement of goods. And aside from delivering large-scale projects, he teaches a well-known annual PE exam crash course on transportation, as well as takes part in education of the undergraduate civil engineering program at his alma mater, Cal Poly Pomona. He's enthusiastic about the future of transportation and how it continues to shape our everyday lives. Brandon Reyes. Brandon, thank you for joining us. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate the opportunity. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah. Glad to have you on. Um, this topic is is going to be kind of a bear. <laughs> but I uh, wanted to, to start with a, a brief um, description. Anything I left out of your description or anything you want to say in addition to, uh, to what I've said about uh, Michael Baker? Uh, no, I mean, um, I kind of know your guys' background and where you come from. I am a uh, semi-avid listener of the podcast. Um, 
I'm all caught up. I didn't, I didn't get to listen to the Halloween one last week. So I got that on the queue, <laughs> but, um, you know, you, you guys coming from the building and architecture side of the world, I don't necessarily directly interface with you all too much, but you definitely play a pivotal role in my world in the fact that, you know, if, if you can bring people and, um, businesses to areas, then the areas need interchanges and freeways. So we definitely go hand in hand as far as, um, transportation and on um, the building industry. So, yeah. uh, I, I think you covered it on my bio. So thank you. Uh, Seriously. Everybody's bio we've had on the show sounds amazing. I need to have somebody write one up for me. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. You could, you could just go online and plug in your name and they'll, they'll just spit <laughs> one out for you. I swear. It's like a template, like on indeed these days or whatever. Perfect. Exactly. So before we get uh, too far into it, to understand a little bit more about transportation, you got to know where we came from. And to do that, you got to go back in time. From the beginning of time, humans have needed to travel for food, resources, or relocation for better environments. Fortunately, humans learned to modify and use their resources, as outlined in this TED-Ed segment on urbanization. Our ancestors began to learn the secrets of selective breeding and early agricultural techniques. For the first time, people could raise food rather than search for it, and this led to the development of semi-permanent villages for the first time in history. Why only semi-permanent, you might ask? Well, at first the villages still had to relocate every few years as the soil became depleted. It was only with the advent of techniques like irrigation and soil tilling about 5,000 years ago that people could rely on a steady and long-term supply of food, making permanent settlements possible. And with the food surpluses that these techniques produced, it was no longer necessary for everyone to farm. This allowed the development of other specialized trades and by extension, cities. With cities now producing surplus food as well as tools, crafts, and other goods, there was now the possibility of commerce and interaction over longer distances. And as trade flourished, so did technologies that facilitated it, like carts, ships, roads, and ports. But it wasn't until the Industrial Revolution that a network of large cities started to emerge in the most economically advanced parts of the world. In the 17th and 18th century, bicycles, trains, motor cars, trucks, and airplanes expanded and connected the world, and the first car with an internal combustion engine reshaped the way we live in it. Prior to the automobile, Cities often opted for a grid street pattern, as a grid pattern jointly optimizes accessibility and available real estate. At the end of World War II, land in the U.S. was abundant, and transportation costs were low, which made commuting relatively inexpensive compared with land costs. In addition, the U.S. housing policy incentivized qualifying households to buy homes in suburban areas. Fine. Yes, I'd love to. Thanks, Jean. I'll be there. Two o'clock. Goodbye. You know, three weeks ago, I couldn't have accepted that invitation. Like so many people these days, we live in the suburbs, and Dave needs the car every day for business. When he was gone, I was practically a prisoner in my own home. I couldn't get out to see my friends, couldn't take part in PTA activities, I couldn't even shop when I wanted to. I had to wait till Thursday night after Dave brought the car home. But that's all changed now. Three weeks ago, we bought another Ford. The new, low-priced, custom-line Victoria. Isn't it stunning? Dave has it all to himself. And I now have the ranch wagon all to myself. It's a whole new way of life. Now I'm free to go anywhere, do anything, see anybody anytime I want to. It's only good common sense. Why be stuck with one expensive car when you can enjoy all the fun and freedom of two fine Fords? Today, more and more families are finding out how easy it is to become two Ford families. You can choose from 20 different models, colors galore, and each available with Thunderbird power, with styling inspired by the famous Ford Thunderbird and each with the extra protection of Ford's lifeguard design. See your Ford dealers soon. The automobile rose to the forefront of society and incited a shift from the grid pattern towards curvilinear patterns. 
Suburbs were designed with cul-de-sacs aimed to reduce the amount of car traffic on residential streets within the subdivisions, thus reducing noise, air pollution, and probability of accidents. In the pre-automobile era, about 10% of the urban land was devoted to transportation, which was simply roads for pedestrian traffic. From the 1950s, the preference for road transportation led to a massive consumption of space, with 1.5 to 2% of the world's total land surface devoted to the automobile, mainly for roads and parking lots. The dependence on transportation has reached a point where 30 to 60% of urban areas are taken by road transportation infrastructure alone. In more extreme cases of dependency on road transportation, such as Los Angeles, this figure can reach 70%. The world's urban population has more than doubled to reach nearly 3.8 billion in 2014, about 54% of the global population. Urban mobility problems have increased proportionately, and in some cases exponentially, through natural population increase, rural to urban migrations, and international migration. By 2050, 6.4 billion people, about two-thirds of humanity, are likely to be urban residents. This growth is and will continue to place intense pressures on urban infrastructures, particularly transportation, resulting in staggering congestion. Some have taken the lead in exploring advanced solutions to alleviate the congestion. We're, we're trying to dig a hole um, under LA. That's Elon Musk, discussing his boring company's concept to provide underground tunnels for transportation under Los Angeles. And this is to create the beginning of what will hopefully be a 3D network of tunnels to alleviate congestion. First of all, you have to be able to integrate the entrance and exit of the tunnel seamlessly into the fabric of the city. So by having a, an, an elevator, sort of a, a, sort of a, a car skate that's on, on an, uh, an elevator, you can integrate the entrance and exits uh, to the tunnel network oh just by God. using two parking spaces. Um, and then the car gets on a skate. There's no speed limit here. so. Uh, we're designing this to be uh, able to operate at 200 kilometers an hour or about 130 miles per hour. Uh, so you should be able to get from, say, uh, Westwood to LAX in six minutes, five, six minutes. Transportation is connected to economic, social, and spatial changes around the world. Societies have become increasingly dependent on their transport systems to support a wide variety of activities. Developing transport systems has been a continuous challenge to satisfy mobility needs, to support economic development, and to participate in the global economy. A future of autonomous vehicles, underground tunnels, sensors, and smart development awaits, but we must consider inefficiencies of the past as we strive for the exciting developments on the horizon. There's a lot to unpack there. I think one of the biggest items that that we've seen lately is probably the the boring uh, Elon Musk boring companies project that they're working on concept, the underground tunnels. Uh, Brandon, have you have you had any? You have couldn't have had any experience with it, but have you heard any talks or um, is that conversation starting to happen about underground tunnels for for transportation? Yeah, it's definitely picking up a lot of momentum. You know, when you read about just directly about the boring company that Elon Musk is doing, you know, one of his many companies, you know, he lives in LA. And so they experience it uh, quite a bit there locally. And really what's going on in LA, that most people are aware of is, you know, the traffic is really bad over very short distances. So in a setting like that, where it takes you you know, an hour to travel five miles in a, in a traffic setting, coming up with a way to get there, to, to get there without having to run roads or highways or um, light rail, you know, through a city, uh, that's ideal. So the tunneling idea really makes a lot of sense in a really dense urban setting, because first of all, tunnels, they don't, you know, the tunneling project, I think I read the longest one is in Japan and it's like 37 miles. So 
it's not like these stories of high-speed rail or, or some of these even obviously existing rail projects that, that run up and down a state or across multiple states, like on the East Coast, they have a big one that runs along the coast. You know, with the Boring Project, you need short distances um, because it, it's uh, very um, impactful to dig a long distance and you can lose your drill rigs. Um, a lot of things can happen. So a short distance is ideal. So it makes a lot of sense. And everything that I'm reading says he's ready to open the tunnel in December, um, December 10th. That was the latest what I read yesterday. Apparently, it apparently has a two mile stretch now. So it's really interesting um, how fast it's progressing. Yeah, it's a, I know that commute very well. I was doing a, a commute to LA for a while uh, for, for an office that I worked at there. And like you said, I could, uh, I could travel from like the Inland Empire area all the way to just under 10 miles outside of LA. And then it just comes to a grinding halt. And uh, yeah, the last 45 minutes of my drive were going that, that 10 miles. And from what I was reading, our highway system is really for long travel, but when you get into those kind of close distances of uh, major city to major city that, that are fairly close, that's where the problem comes in. So it sounds like, yeah, that, that if you can jump off and hit that underground tunnel somewhere, um, you could potentially alleviate a good chunk of traffic, especially at the speeds that, that they were proposing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 150, 150 miles an hour going uh, 10 miles. You get there pretty fast. Yeah. Um, it's it's interesting. And, and, you know, on the engineering side of it, um, even in related to what you guys do, what's fascinating is, is how, how deep they, they plan on going or they do go for these tunnels. You know, apparently they get below the seismic activity. They get below any foundations that you would run into and any utilities that you might hit. So anytime we do any kind of work where we go underground, all we are worried about is how we're going to get the building or the, or the bridge to stay up and how we're going to avoid all the utilities along the way. So if they're able to get under everything, then that can really cut out a lot in, I'll say the planning of it. Um, so it's interesting. It really is. It's pretty cool. I'll, um, I'll try and post a video. They, they showed a video on Ted where they have this uh, mock-up of how that, system's going to work where you drive on uh from the street you drive onto a platform that's basically an elevator that drops you down to the underground tunnel uh you sit on the the skate that he describes and then it just kind of connects you into that that tunnel um right with traffic so uh, i'll post that video as well if i can find it um well just a and just a couple of days ago elon musk himself tweeted out a video that shows the high speed version of his stroll through. So I guess he, he like literally videotaped his two mile walk <laughs> through the tunnel that was built. And Brandon's right. Um, everything that I've read talks about it being ready to go come December 10th. But what they're, you know, what they're kind of saying right now is it's literally just a ride, right? It, it isn't going to sort of serve the purpose, but I think it's a really positive step in the right direction. The one question I have is, you know, we talk about, you know, this being kind of a solution for congestion. Um, the challenge, though, is if it's as a two-mile stretch, it works well if you live on one end and work on the other. But it doesn't necessarily work well if you can't solve for what you do with your car when you arrive to one end. If you don't, like, so if you don't live kind of in the vicinity, right? So you drive your vehicle. Then what do you do with your vehicle in order to get onto... Um, what are they even calling it? The, the, the roller skate, the the roller skate. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So what do you do? You know, what do you do with your vehicle for that two mile travel that you're going to be doing underground? Um, Yeah. You know, Michelle, what's interesting about that is this is a long going, I'll say riddle that we in Southern California and even in a lot of urban settings have tried to crack. And the fact that we're so spread out in this area and many areas like this are very spread out and everyone's used to driving their vehicles everywhere it's a very hard concept and it's a like really a cultural shift to get everyone out of their cars and to that source of what i'll call public transportation in our industry we call in our industry we call it first mile last mile so cracking the code to first mile last mile which is you know basically means that that first mile to get to the train or the tunnel or the 
you know, the rail. And then the last mile off of it to get to your work or wherever you're going on the backside, how do you do that without owning two different cars? And, you know, so that part there is, I think, the ultimate conundrum of any type of transportation outside of your vehicle. So what what you just mentioned is what I had uh, some friends that were or a buddy in particular that was commuting back and forth to like Burbank from Orange County. And that's what he did. He basically bought a really inexpensive vehicle that he left at the parking lot or whatever it was on the other side to drive back and forth wherever it was going because it was more than half a mile away. You know what I mean? And then I can only imagine that creates a whole big problem with not everybody's going to be able to park a car somewhere, you know? Yeah. And they, you know, these transportation agencies, um, in the, in the area down here. And I know everywhere they're trying to figure out how to do that without everyone having to have two separate cars or you having to find, you know, get a bus to get to a train, to get a bus, to get on a bike, to go to work, you know, although we talk about, you know, that's, that's multimodal, but you know, that that's um, sort of unrealistic for people that could just jump in their car and drive 45 minutes and, and kind of ignore that hassle. So, you know, that, that goes into where you talk about how, how we're rolling into this, Uber and autonomous vehicle discussion, you know, that that's kind of how the two pair together. And, you know, there is going to very quickly be a day where there are vehicles without someone at the wheel that are driving us around. And that's really where it gets into a game changer. How big time. How far do you think, or are you hearing that we're away from that autonomous vehicle starting to really make some ground? Because I know in Arizona, um, in Arizona yeah. they're a little more on board with it and letting it uh, kind of work out the bugs, but not so much here. What's happening, what we're seeing is, first of all, the free market. So these companies, whether it be the software companies or the actual um, car companies, they're all jumping on board because they see that it's the future. So that's a really good thing in, the, in a market like ours when the tech companies and our private businesses are, are on, on board with it. That's a good sign. So then th- what they're doing is they're putting pressure. Well, they have to prove out to the local agencies of why this is beneficial. And once they do that, then the local agencies put pressure on the state and federal government to allow all of these new types of modes of travel, specifically autonomous, onto the road. So it's kind of like this ripple effect. Some agencies are on board because they're kind of ahead of the trends. Others take a little bit longer. But I think ultimately... In the transportation industry, everyone knows it's coming. There's really no disagreement about that. It's all those nuanced questions of how long. I think it's fat. I think it'll happen fast. How long it'll take to convert to be fully autonomous for all of us? That's going to be a decade or two, I would say. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's uh, it's interesting. I was actually just reading an article the other day about, and as crazy as it sounds, when we went from horse and buggy to car, it was right at the turn of the century, and I guess. From what we hear, you know, the Model T came along and some of these more advanced cars at the time came along. And they said it took about a decade for us to have, you know, a mixture of horses on the road and cars on the road. And then you look at photos and a decade later, it was paved roads with cars. Yeah. So, That's ex- yeah. What Brandon says is exactly right. So I was at a conference in Las Vegas not too long ago. And one of the panel sessions was about autonomous vehicles. And we had some naysayers at our table. So the, the format was we were all kind of sitting at tables. And at our table, as the panel was going on, there were some naysayers. And so a couple of us actually Googled um, photos of New York. And Brandon's spot on. The, the difference between the photo of New York with all horse and buggies and the photo with uh, vehicles was literally eight years And even in present time, if you think about our phones, like think about our telephones, right? In 2008, Hmm. just 10 years ago, the iPad did not exist. I remember like in present day history when the iPad and I'm thinking and I remember when when they announced when Apple announced and I thought, why would you want this giant phone? Yeah, (laughs) Why why do you need an iPad, right? And now every person has some version of a tablet. It may not be the iPad, but they have some version of the tablet. So I think there are a lot of infrastructure issues that have to be worked out with autonomous vehicles. But I'm in the camp that it's going to happen a heck of a lot sooner than I think we can really imagine uh, from where we sit right now. And the fact that there's so many people talking about it 
even actually last Thursday, I was at a conference, um, just a single day conference for planning commissioners and city officials in Orange County. So pretty local uh, conference, one day event. And they actually had a, a track, you know, they have the conference track. So there were three consecutive courses specifically related to autonomous vehicles. So the fact that our local governments, our cities are talking about it and planning for it, I mean, speaks volumes, I think, to just how soon it's going to be here. Brandon, what exactly are you guys doing to kind of accommodate autonomous vehicles? Yeah, so probably the one of the first things we're seeing early, um, at least on, I'll say, like the design and planning side is right off the bat, Caltrans, our state DOT here that I'm sure most people have heard of, they're typically a slow moving um, entity and they already are making adjustments. So just simply speaking, they've changed the width of stripe requirement, the stripe on the road on the ground to be, to go from four inches to six inches, no matter the stripe. And so they did that so that the autonomous vehicles can see those stripes better. Huh. So it sounds, you know, very minor and it is minor, but it's a great move in the right direction. And, and what we're going to start seeing next and already all these software companies are talking about is, is just the communication from the vehicle to the road and the features along the road. So we're going to start to see, you know, I, I, most people won't even notice it, but all these signs, um, signs and roadside features are going to have communication devices of some sort on them or related to them so that the vehicle can know what's going on. So, um, be, so you're talking yeah. like uh, sensors. So you're going to be running more wires and. Uh, yeah, a lot of it'll of... be, a lot of it'll be, you know, Bluetooth um, or other kind of over the airwaves technology. So yeah. it, it's not that we're going to be running infrastructure in the ground that we don't already run. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there is fiber optic and the, the infrastructure, there's definitely a play there. But a lot of it is going to be, you know, trying to stay ahead of technology, not have to physically interrupt too much to um, to get all of this infrastructure in place. Really, what's what's the part that blows me away and what I do about the direction that this is heading is, is what's going to happen? You know, you ask, OK, why do we want to go autonomous? Is it just because we're all, you know, we'd all rather stare at our iPad instead of drive or, you know, or sleep on the way to work instead of drive. Well, what, what they, they already recognize is going to happen is safety is going to increase bottom line. So, you know, all of these accidents that we hear about in the early reports of autonomous vehicles, I mean, that's all at the infancy stage. And a lot of these accidents um, are things that need to, to be overcome in the technology, but it's going to very quickly, very quickly, get way ahead of the safety of humans and we're gonna see crashes and accidents go down i mean when we're fully autonomous they're gonna be gone they won't be heard of really so so, you know that's the biggest thing that i think about though when we go like autonomous vehicles Mm -hmm. is i i do i do truly believe you know there's some human beings in this world that probably shouldn't be driving a car in my opinion (laughs) um so i'm glad that it kind of takes them off the road and i do get the distractions and all that kind of stuff but what freaks me out still even still is our computers glitch, our phones glitch, like everything glitches out, right? No matter what it is, when it's electronically controlled, there's always some kind of little thing that's going to throw it off. What happens then? You Because there's almost like that time when you do need to make a correction as a human being if you're paying attention, right? What happens then? That's the one thing that freaks me out. I'm, I'm a control freak by nature. I'm not so sure I want to give a car all the capability in the world to be able to drive me around perfectly fine. You know what I mean? Um, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I'm really curious on actually everybody's thoughts on that. Yeah, I could. Uh, I, I think it's very, very normal to have those concerns. And I, I think the fact that companies that want to make money will be at the, uh, at the driver's seat, pun, pun intended, um, I think that it will be advantageous for those kinks to work themselves out. I, I just don't think it makes sense that it won't work itself out, but it's definitely a valid concern that everyone's thinking about. And really beyond that, honestly, is the concern about security. I think that's probably the biggest one is the cybersecurity side of things. And really, if it gets in the hands of someone that wants to do something, um, then I think we have a real threat. So those things, though, I mean, 
the amount of time you've spent, you know, we've all spent thinking about it. There have been companies investing millions, if not billions of dollars, trying to make sure all of that is worked out already sure. in 2018, you know? So, but it's definitely a concern. I think, yeah. um, I yeah, think for I it to work. Say, if you look at some of the companies that you have now, Apple, Google, you know, Amazon, and it's like, and they still have problems with their programs. You know what I mean? And, it, and it's, and it's out of no disrespect for saying that. It's just, it's a little freaky. I think for it to work, it has to be, uh, all the cars have to be on this autonomous system so that if there is some sort of malfunction, they all speak to each other and can ad uh, adjust to whichever car is malfunctioning or if they all go down for whatever reason it all you know kind of just pods down at the same time so with that said brenna have you heard of sort of a, a transition period potentially where you have a lane or two that's still dedicated to actual drivers behind the wheel and then a lane or two uh for autonomous vehicles and is there a consideration for how do you implement something like that? I think that's going to be definitely the trickiest part. How you get a network of vehicles that are older working into the system is going to be a huge challenge. So, you know, because uh, honestly, you can legislate it, uh, which will be difficult, you yeah. know, telling everyone to get rid of their old classic car or that their classic car can't be on any public road anymore will be a tough one. Yeah. Um, can you plug a chip into every car that's older and you talk to their existing computers? Uh, probably, but then you got to have every car have a computer and, and we still have old cars that don't. So I think, I think that's honestly the biggest challenge is how to figure out how to get everyone on board with the older vehicles. And, and I don't think that's been figured out yet, Demetrius, honestly, hmm. um, that, that one's going to take a lot of time and understanding and, and, It'll be it'll be tricky how they do it. I think marketing will play a huge role, like that Ford commercial that was played earlier. That kind of sways a lot of people to to kind of make that transition to the next step of getting an extra car, or in this case, shifting to self driving cars. I was gonna say even the sheer cost. You know what I mean? Most people have a difficult enough time buying a buying a newer vehicle as it is. You know what I mean? So how are they going to be able to afford this? what I'm assuming is not going to be an inexpensive vehicle. Good. This is the best question because, and this is where I think your guys's industry will actually be impacted the most. So what they say is going to happen is we're not all going to have our own vehicle anymore. Right. And it's going to be ride we're sharing. All, we're all going to be in a network of vehicles. Now, whether that means let's say the four of us live near each other, whether that means we together pitch in in some sort of way into one vehicle and, you know, the four of us own a, whatever, a Nissan, or there's just a network of vehicles out there, kind of like Uber is right now, you know, there's a network of vehicles and you just call up a vehicle when you need a ride. Or like, or like what in LA where they got those scooters or New York and all that kind exactly. of stuff. You literally just walk up, throw the credit card on it and away you go. Exactly. And so, so I really, I think that's the way it'll go. And the, I mean, I'm not the first person to think of that. Trust me. They're all talking about it. If it goes that way. What happens to garages? They're gone. Yeah. What happens to what happens to parking spaces in urban development or in even any development area? Are these cars now parked in parking garages five miles away waiting for us? You know, in some on some dirt off some dirt road where no one it doesn't bother anyone. But if see, so, only, all of a sudden you've opened up everything. You know? The only the only thing that I struggle with on this, right, because if you try to go back into history and you look at just transportation in general. Whether it was horse and buggy, boat, you know, however you want to look at canoes, whatever it was, right? One of the biggest things that I've always heard defined about having an automobile was the individuality and the privacy, right? So if you look at it from that perspective, because you could go do, get to wherever you want to get to on your own, right? In the comfort of whatever it is and, and that type of deal, you're basically wiping out that entire idea. By going to this, you know, like I said, like the scooter thing, like you're, you're describing right now, you know what I mean? That individuality basically goes away. But I don't I think, think yeah. that's a major hurdle. I mean, that's a major, major hurdle. But I think our generation and below are less inclined to, to desire that individuality in that sense. 
No uh, way. They're all hocked up in like uh, <laughs> lease payments on BMWs and Mercedes Benz and everything. Are you kidding me? Like no that's way. one of the only way that they're able to define who they are. No, I think or, that's or, or who they or who they want everybody else to believe they are. I well, think. I, I, Oh, go ahead, Demetri. I think our generation's more defined by our experiences. That's why you get Instagram blowing up, uh, people doing tra- uh, on trips, traveling, and and putting up photos of where they are all the time. I think it's more about experience now than it is about property. And, I think uh, I say the same pictures of the least BMW and Mercedes <laughs> that they just got. <laughs> well, I think you know. Um, I think first of all, I think it'll. I think it'll probably remain optional, probably forever. You know. Not sure. everyone, not everyone owns a boat, but most of us have been on a boat. And right. People that can afford one own one, and the rest of us rent one or ride one with our friends. But, but uh, furthermore, if you talk to anyone with teenagers, if you guys, I don't think any of you guys have teenagers yet. Well, I'm getting close, man. Okay. <laughs> well, everything I'm hearing right now from my nieces and I mean, almost 100% across the board, they don't rush out to get their license like we used to. They don't. Yeah. You're, you're 100% and, and, correct. And if that's going to be the case, and that seems like it is, and I think that's because you can talk to all your friends on the iPad now. You don't need to throw rocks at their window. It's true. I, I think I think it'll start to fade. It, it won't be immediate, but it'll start to fade, and we'll look like those countries that use a lot of public transportation. Oh, that's a good point. It's a really good and point. In this, yeah, and in this case, the public transportation is a car, which is a little, you know, throws you a little bit off. But, hey, you know, eventually it's it, it might look like that, you know? So I want to jump back a little bit to the the fast the like really fascinating part of that where it affects our buildings housing yeah. yeah so so I just ran the numbers today just out of curiosity and the garage on a average home takes up thirteen percent of your built area on a house on average that's a lot of space that goes to your car just sitting there so just imagine. Not only on the individual home, but the parking garages, like you mentioned, Brandon. I heard a conversation from, who was it? Uh, someone from Google that suggested that the future is that all of these cars will just continue to, they actually won't sit in a dirt road or anything like that. They're just going to be in constant motion and potentially, I would assume, less cars. But once we get to a point where all of this is ironed out, the next step of of how do we uh, start to adjust to all the extra space that we could potentially have, like the the parking garage is being looked at now as uh, how do you convert that into housing potentially with um, shipping containers because they're uh, fixed pods that could just slide right into place or parking structures that convert into sort of an outdoor gym type facility or or multi-purpose entertainment space on different levels so all of this uh evolution and and adapted living in all of these different spaces is exciting totally i mean if they're able to move cars out you know think of all these downtown settings for these high market real estate where they have to put a parking structure there yep you know and, and if they can get rid of that you know if they can demo the parking structure right next to their Hyatt, they got space to put another Hyatt next to their Hyatt, you know, or, or, you know, whatever it may be. I mean, it's, it'll totally, totally change everything, but I'll tell you right now, it's going to be a real trip when, when you, when you do get on the road, even if you're not driving and you see a bunch of cars with no one in them driving around, that'll, gosh, that'll feel like uh, another world. But, you know, I think the constant motion idea is just an idea. Mm -hmm. Um, I think adding a lot of cars with no one in them, we call that driverless vehicles, even though it's not even really a thing yet. Um, We're concerned about that. Um, Forecasting, we do a lot of traffic forecasting and modeling in our design and our planning for infrastructure projects. Forecasting driverless vehicles really throws a wrench into things. And um, I think if if you let, uh, I'll say the planners and those that worry about that decide, they would say, let's not have a bunch of empty cars driving around and kind of muddying the pool. Um, so, so you're talking but, about like riderless uh, yeah, riderless, trips. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Dri- yeah. Driverless trips. You know, right now we don't, that doesn't exist. You know, when, uh, when we plan trips for um, a family of four in a suburban area, we plan that they'll go to the store and come back and that they'll go to the mall and come back or they'll go to the mall and go to the store. And those are just, you know, those are trips with people in them. Um, 
Now, if you have a vehicle, let's say you do go to the store, let's say we're in this autonomous setting, you go to the store and now your car is driving around while you're at the store. Um, or even if it's driving to that offsite facility, that is a driverless car. And that's a real weird wrench in our planning because now it's, it's adding trips that we never really, hmm. we never really planned before. So it's a bit of a concern, uh, but you know, it is potentially less vehicles. So if we're all sharing a vehicle in theory, it's less, but then again, if we all need to go to the store, is it kind of the same amount of trips anyway? So it really starts to get uh, and makes you uh, stay up at night if you think about it too much. But, <laughs> but I would say, and I would say in general though, I for sure see needing vehicles at the home will definitely change. And your guys's industry will, you know, obviously depending on the setting you're in, if you're in a really urban environment where parking is expensive, why are you going to pay for parking, pay for insurance, pay for a lease or own a vehicle when you could share, you could just be in a rideshare program and you just call the vehicle when you need it. And, and you don't need all that space, you know? So that's I mean, a ultimately, changer. ultimately too, I think there's even a lot of people that now that are starting to declare the fact that they're getting rid of their vehicles and just using rideshare services like Uber and yep. whatnot. So I, you know, going back to what you were saying earlier, the shifts occurring, you know what yep. I mean? I don't know how big it really is. And I think some of these people are just trying to be trend setting in, in that you know regard, but, um, it, it's, it's like, it's feasible. You could see it happening. It's just really, I guess the biggest question is, is how, how long is that transition period? You know what I mean? Like I always, every time we talk about stuff like this, I always think of that movie, I robot, right. Where basically mm -hmm. everybody was in their car and it's driving around on its own. And you know, I'm the idiot like Will Smith. It's like, no, I want to do it myself, you know, 250 miles an hour type of deal. But at, at what point, does it make the stage of, okay, now the cars are driving themselves and you still own the car and then people are getting rid of cars and then now you're just renting, you know, the time in the car. You know what I mean? How, how long does that transition period really take to get to a point where you're saying now, and I agree that you wouldn't really need garages and you don't really need, you know, parking podium development. You could have two additional floors of living, you know, that type of stuff as well. But I just see that as so much further out there because people got to get comfortable with it, you know? It, it all seems very futuristic. Um, and things we're talking futuristic and, and Brandon, I think you just, or maybe it was Demetrius, someone mentioned Google and sort of the investment that Google has made. We could take this conversation even more into the future. Although when you really sort of look at what's actually already happening, you know, we could talk about flying cars. So we're talking about driverless cars. We're talking about autonomous vehicles, but what about the flying cars that are already being studied and companies, you know, giant companies like Airbus and Boeing and Uber, they're all already making investments. I mean, there's a, a company that actually a, a very good friend of mine works for um, called Z Aero based in Mountain View. And, you know, you look at that company, it was created by Larry Page, CEO of, of Google. Um, that whole program is about reinventing personal aircraft transportation. And literally having, you know, Jetson scenario where, where instead of having vehicles on the ground, we have vehicles that are, you know, sort of transporting us from one location to another above any traffic that might be existing on the ground. Um, it, it's all, <laughs> you know, Jason's question is, is a legitimate one, which is, you know, it is all going to happen. It's just how soon is it going to happen? No, yeah. I've heard that conversation about uh, the, the flying cars and one of the, complicated parts i think with that is um how it flies because if it's going to be propul like jet propulsion to get that that car up in the air it interferes so much with everything around it and below it and then magnetized is complicated as well interfering with things that are below and around you so i think that one's probably even harder to to work out so I would I would encourage everyone to do and this isn't an advertisement. It's just because <laughs> this technology exists. Um, there's if you Google Cora dot Aero uh, A E R O, you know this Cora plane, which is in in um, I don't want to say production, but it's being flight tested and studied and analyzed. And essentially, to your direct concern about how does that air travel work what they're talking about is a plane that can take off and land just like a helicopter does which eliminates mm -hmm. the need for a runway and then this Cora company is even talking about 
going one step further where it's all electric. You know, so we're not using gas or other forms of, of power. You know, and what this starts to introduce is if you've got, call it vehicles or planes that are kind of leaving Earth, um, similar to a helicopter does, then, then how do we begin to transform spaces like rooftops and parking lots and we eliminate garages altogether because everyone's just taking a plane. (laughs) So, I mean, there's a lot we could, we could, it's, it's funny when you kind of think about the future of transportation, it's maybe hard to grasp right now, but I'm sure, you know, what year was it that the, that the automobile was, was invented? I'm sure 10 years prior to that date, you know, it was challenging to ever understand that we could have vehicles. I think just the mass amount of hurdles that are in the way of putting a lot of people in the air and doing it in a way that doesn't cause a lot of strife, like Demetrius said, physically, it, it, it seems like we're like a couple inventions away when um, when the autonomous one, we're zero inventions away. I mean, it, it's it's already invented. It's there. There's really nothing in the way but legislation and getting people on board. So I think the autonomous one will happen quicker. but. You know, all of this, you got to think of any new technology, you know, when when electricity was invented, I'm sure the candle makers laughed and said, well, how how will they keep these light, these so-called electric lights on when we have wax coming out of our ears, literally, and (laughs) we'll never run out of it. And, you know, wicks are easy to make and we have fire. That's one of the first inventions, you know, so you start to look at things that that were a thing and then they went away real quickly and, and it could be cars. Uh, so it's, it's interesting and it's really going to impact everyone in every industry in so many ways, which is, cool. which is really why you want to watch it. It's interesting to me is when we talk about all these advancements, right? Like, I, I don't know if anybody here actually owns an electric vehicle. Like I still can't get behind electric vehicles. You know what I mean? Like I know everything's going that direction. There's no doubt right? It's all going to go that direction. But even if you go buy, you know, top of the line Tesla, you still have logistical issues with that vehicle because you can only take it so far before you need a charge. And that charge takes, I don't know how long, you know what I mean? So then we start talking about this idea about flying vehicles and stuff like that, which again, I totally agree is going to happen. But now it's like, if you're in order to get something off the ground, the amount of energy that takes either in fossil fuel or in electricity is going to be absurd, right? There's going to be a whole lot of energy that that's going to absorb. And if it's an electric standpoint, we've got to figure out a way to make either the the energy source last longer or the charges to be much, much quicker to be able to keep people moving at the pace or the distances that they're going to want to go. You know what I mean? And if it's and if it's via like fossil fuels, well, now we're back to the whole thing about everybody's burning all sorts of fuel, because in order for a plane to move like a plane moves, it uses an obscene more amount of fuel than a vehicle currently does. You know what I mean? Like there's, I think there's a, there's a whole nother side to it that probably really isn't being discussed. The only way I guess it would, would pan out to a certain degree is if people are completely getting rid of their vehicles and you're just back into that ride sharing scenario. So you're taking so many more vehicles off the, you know, off the grid, if you will. I can tell you that it's all being discussed. (laughs) And, uh, if you dig, if you dig down the rabbit hole or go to some of these conferences that I've been to. All of this is being talked about and, and some of it's um, been being talked about for a while and some of it is uh, our new concepts or, or people are just starting to unpack it. But you uh, you would be surprised how much uh, how much this is part of the conversation. And it's uh, it's at the front edge. So it's uh, it's all coming. <laughs> it's all coming. And then cities, yeah. cities also have to start to get on board with this conversation as well. And, and how do they start to slowly adopt what what the possibilities are because all the cities have parking requirements that are usually 1.5 to 2 cars per yep. per unit um how do you start to dwindle that down as these community new communities are developed so that conversation needs to start happening so 1.5 to 2 I wish it was that <laughs> try 2.5 to 3 it depends on where you are but yeah well, you know, it's funny too. Like some of the other stuff I think about is I'm, you know, I'm, I'm driving now. Where, where do all the DMV fees and all that stuff go? I mean, I, I still wonder where all that, I still wonder where all that money goes right now. You know what I mean? <laughs> but for the most part, like I, I'm going to spend 700 bucks on registration for my truck. You know what I mean? This year. And it's like, okay, well now if everybody's getting really, how do, how do they maintain roads? Is that another tax reform that we're looking at or what? Because 
there's a lot of taxes that that are produced, you know, as a byproduct of having these vehicles. Yeah, I think ultimately less cars on the road will benefit all of us. Um, you know, there, believe it or not, there is not an evil dictator in a mansion at the top of the DMV saying, I'm going to rake in all this money. Um, there has you know, to be. Come on, there has to be. No, <laughs> not, to say, not to say that the government is perfect at managing the money, but we're, we're right on the heels of it. And when this, when this podcast is heard, we'll know whether or not um, Prop 6 is repealed or, or passes. Right now, we can't keep up. The, just very simply, the roads can't keep up with the demand and the and the amount that gets put into them so we have too many vehicles on the road and the amount of gas that we use is not enough to stay up with it so as all these cars get more efficient the 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 fees that go against the the gas which is the gas tax it's not staying up with the need for the roads so what is going to be great is when the amount of cars on the roads gets reduced i unfortunately i'll probably be out of a job because interchanges won't need to be built anymore uh, because now we can fit less cars on the road, the roads that we have today. Less huh. cars on the road means less vehicle miles put on the road, which means less potholes and a need for widening these roads. So ultimately, I think it'll it'll all circle back. Um, the question I uh, the question I have is, what happens to insurance companies? Because they're the ones actually with an evil dictator sitting on top of the hill. And <laughs> Dude, it, they've and been, it, who ca- who cares? I hope they burn down. Man. They've been. <laughs> They've been burning all of us for years. I can't even yeah, keep, I can't even count on two hands the amount of insurance policies we have, man. It's crazy. Yeah. If I if I have to share a car with you four, and that means I got I, I don't have to write an insurance check uh once every three months, I'm in. You know, so it'll, I just uh, wrote it'll a, be it'll be nice. Yeah, I just wrote a large insurance check today, actually. Uh auto insurance. <laughs> um but Brandon, I have a I have a question. So, you know, we're talking about um to make the conversation a little more tangible, if we look at the 405 freeway right now, mm-hmm. stretch yeah. between the 73 and um, I guess it's the Los Angeles County, Orange County border, and we look at what we're doing, right? We're, we're if I have it correctly, we're creating toll lanes um, yep. down the middle. I think there's going to be two on in each direction. So yep. why why do that as opposed to, and I know this is this is a loaded question and I know part of the answer but I'm sort of just putting it out there you know why do we do that which sort of just exasperates the problem right it's like we're going to make these improvements and by the time these improvements are done in 2022 or whatever year it is we're going to have already caught up and we're going to be behind the curve again versus versus doing light rail so rather than putting these toll toll lanes in yeah. why not have some sort of you know, large public transit that gets us from South Orange County into the heart of, of West LA. Cause you can't make as much money. <laughs> uh, I mean, seriously no, though. I, there's really not a single way to attack the problem. And if, if you talk to legitimate people, you know, I work with a lot of people that work for these transportation agencies and they're really good people and they're, they're not, they're not um, cashing in big checks because they get to build more roads. It's just really not how it works. So they're trying to solve it because everyone agrees that traffic sucks. There's not really a single way to attack it. And if there was a perfect solution, it would have already been done. So, you know, there is, here's an example. How many people that you know have taken Metro or Metrolink or um, Amtrak, you know, let's, not make it so specific to Southern California. If you actually ask around, at least in this setting, how many people have taken it? How many people even know where their nearest station is? How many people have? How many people go to, let's say, the game on the weekend and realize the train will take them there for ten dollars both ways? And yeah, they'll have to figure out that first mile, last mile that we talked about. But people don't even know that it exists, and it already exists. Now it's not perfect, but it's there. Well, it's just our culture is not used to it, and all of us are in cars. Yeah, yeah, so I, I think that's so that's a really thing. well. So that's a really interesting. I mean, you, you talk about the game. So I literally had a, a Los Angeles weekend last weekend, which entailed going to the USC football game on Saturday and going to the Los Angeles Rams game on Sunday with an overnight mm-hmm. stay in downtown Los Angeles. And our original plan was actually to take public transportation from Tustin, which is the nearest train station to my house, which oh by the way, is a twenty-five minute car ride from yep. my house to my nearest train station. 
So in that same 25 minutes, I could already be halfway to Los Angeles. So right there, it's sort of a flawed system. But here nor there, we thought, hey, we'll take public transportation. We won't have to deal with having a car parked. We'll save, uh, you know, the the cost of having the, the car parked at the hotel. And when we really looked at the times, it didn't make sense. So what we ultimately yeah. did is we drove our vehicle to the hotel, parked, paid an exorbitant amount of money for one overnight. And then we said, well, rather than take the car out of hotel and drive it down to the Coliseum, which is, I think, all of like two and a half miles, we said, we'll leave the car there and we'll just do public transportation. You know, we'll take the metro, we'll do the expo line. We'll rely on Uber. We'll use our own two feet and we'll walk. And I'm not kidding. It it was a disaster. When we took Metro from the Coliseum back into downtown Los Angeles, it was an hour. And it was not because we didn't know what we were doing. We had our tap card. We were very well prepared. We knew exactly where our stations were. We knew what where we were getting on and off. But to get from the Coliseum back to downtown Los Angeles was 45 minutes. Once we actually got That's off ridiculous. of the Metro and walked to the hotel that was another 15 minutes then we had to get the car out of the hotel and then we sat in another hour and a half of traffic to get back to orange county and it was sort of like wow had we just parked our vehicle at the coliseum we would have already been home in that same amount of time it was kind of this you know adventure in public transit and so you know the system just isn't it it isn't working well yet and i love that we're making improvements and i love that you know, the Expo line is a new thing and that's amazing and awesome, but gosh, we're a long ways from it being a system that people can really utilize and sort of do that kind of cost time analysis of how much, how much money am I saving and how much time, you know, am I, am I losing by saving this money for taking the public transportation? Yeah, no, it's, um, it's a real conundrum and, and, well, you know, so and that's why right now, and that's why right now they're widening the 405 because they know they can't completely walk away from cars. It wouldn't make sense. Uh, so they have to kind of attack every piece of the pie and just try to make incremental improvements. And um, and I think this autonomous vehicle thing will be the game changer. You know, it, it it truly will be the way to get less cars on the road. Yeah. So on that note, we're kind of up against it on time. So uh, we'll we'll wrap this one up for today. So thank you again, Brandon, for, for joining us. Uh, you want to promote Michael Baker website or, or anything? Um, I, I doubt anyone's clamoring to look <laughs> up a big transportation company, but you know, I just, um, I say continue the conversation about transportation and how we get around. And if, if you can try different modes of travel, you should do it and, uh, try new things and have an open mind about, um, about how we can fix some of these problems that we all know exist. Um, you know, let's do it. So thanks for having me, uh, guys. I really appreciate it. So with that, uh, we'll skip listener mail for today. But if you have any questions or comments about the conversation today, feel free to email us to hello at spacespodcast.com or follow us on social media, Spaces Podcasts. Thank you again for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate or like it and forward it to a friend. Your support is the only way that the show grows. And if you just stumbled upon the show, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss another episode. And also check out spacespodcast.com under the listen tab for photos and notes on things we talked about today. But before you go, next time on Spaces Podcast. It is, in fact, a national urban epidemic. It spreads like some mysterious magic marker pen spray paint fungus. Remember when graffiti was the scourge of American cities? And now it seems that almost every inch of every public wall is covered with names in an obscure kind of print. But what was once considered vandalism is being presented in an exhibit at the Museum of the City of New York, showcasing some who, as teenagers, left their mark in the 1970s and 80s. And with all that said, if you're catching up, hit next. Or if you're listening as we put these out, we'll see you in a couple weeks. Thanks.
Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.